I'm Yossi Mechelberg. I'm happy to be the chair of the meeting uh, tonight. Uh, in my day job, I'm the program director of international relations social sciences at Webster University at Regents College and associate, uh, associate fellow at the Middle East program at Chatham House. The good news is I just introduced this meeting and then we have a wonderful uh, presentation about Palestinian citizens of Israel, their context and contest. Uh, welcome to you for coming to the Middle East Center, which is hosting uh, this event. As you probably know, those of you who came already here established a lively program of, of meetings and the Middle East events. And in case you are not already on the mailing list, so make sure there are forums, make sure that they are over there. Yes, so you get as many, so you'll, at the end I will tell you about more events here, so you'll be able uh, you're able to get invitations for more exciting events uh, here. Now, the, the running order of today is, first of all, we would like to welcome Dr. Dieter Rosmer, and I'll give you some more details about her later, but she will speak for 30 minutes, and then, if you want, we'll have a full hour of, of Q&A, so you can question and investigate as long as, as one hour. Let me just give you a bit uh, details about Dr. Dilla Rosmer, she's a researcher at the Department of Culture Studies and Oriental Languages at the University of Oslo and visiting fellow at LSE Global Governance. She's currently researching uh, the Islamic movement in Israel and her PhD dissertation, uh, Mizrahiyut, do we need to explain it? To translate Mizrahiyut, meaning the people that came from the Arab world uh, in Israel and the Arab-Jewish divide, contemporary challenges to Israel ethnic boundaries which analyzes social movements dominated by Jews of Middle Eastern, North African origin, and Palestinians as citizens of Israel. Uh, Dr. Rosmer has taught Judaism, Middle Eastern, North Africa studies, and fieldwork methodology at the University of Oslo, and Muslim-Jewish relations and course on Middle Eastern, North African Jews in Israel at the University of Cambridge. A recent publication includes Islamic movement in the Jewish state in political Islam, context versus uh, ideology, and academic activities and conducting fieldworks in conflict zone in cultural dynamics, which is 2010. Uh, the event is on the record. It's recorded, and we hope to have it, or you hope, hope to have it on a podcast of the events will be made available uh, uh, online. So, welcome, and the floor is yours, please. Thank you, Yossi, and thank you, everybody, for coming on such a lovely day. It must have been difficult to go down into the basement when the sun is finally shining. Um, well, so the title of my talk is The, Inside, the Outside Insiders, Palestinian Citizens of Israel, and in 2011, we've seen the Arab Spring and the so-called Palestine Papers. As you probably know, the Palestine Papers uh, are confidential documents related to the Israel-Palestinian conflict and negotiations from 1999 to until 2010, leaked through Al Jazeera and The Guardian. And in these papers, it was confirmed that the exclusion of the Palestinian citizens of Israel from the peace negotiations. It also confirmed the fact that Israeli politicians from center to right in the political spectrum are in favor of a political ex population exchange between Israel's indigenous Arab minority 
and illegal Jewish settlers in the occupied Palestinian territory. So the issue of population exchange is not new, but it is new that it is advocated, as it is today, by the Israeli foreign minister, who is Avigor Lieberman, uh, and who is also the leader of the ultra-nationalist party Israel Beitenu, or Israel, our home. As regards the Arab Spring, the question uh, with regards to Palestinian citizens of Israel is why have they not followed the examples of the demonstrators in Egypt and other countries to protest the increasing discrimination they face as non-Jewish citizens in the Jewish state? If we ask the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, he would maybe argue that the reason the Palestinians in Israel do not, have not gone to the streets is that they have no reason to do so. Uh, as he declared in his speech to the US Congress last week, that you might have heard or seen quoted, and I quote, of the 300 million Arabs in the Middle East and North Africa, only Israel's Arab citizens enjoy real democratic rights. I want you to stop for a second and think about that. Of those 300 million Arabs, less than one half of 1% are truly free and they're all citizens of Israel." Unquote. However, most Palestinian citizens of Israel would take issue with this statement. According to the Inequality Report, which is a document newly published by Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, Palestinian citizens of Israel are, and I quote, marginalized and discriminated against by the state on the basis of their national belonging and religious affiliations as non-Jews, The report specifies that, and again, I quote, direct and indirect discrimination against Palestinian citizens of Israel is ingrained in the legal system and in governmental practices, unquote. Now, to illustrate, the law of return and the citizenship law both privilege Jews and Jewish immigration. Palestinian families are overrepresented among Israel's poor, and employment rates are significantly higher among Palestinian citizens. Palestinian citizens are by law deprived of access to and use of land, and the state provides three times as much funding to Jewish schools when compared to Arab schools. Currently, under Netanyahu's government coalition, 30 new laws that discriminate directly or indirectly against Palestinian citizens have been proposed and are at various stages of the legislative process. Now, in addition to protesting discrimination and inequality, representatives of Palestinian citizens have challenged the Jewish and democratic definition of the State of Israel in three documents called the Future Documents, published between 2006 and 2007. And they are the Future Vision document, published by the Arab High Follow-up Committee and the Na National Committee for Heads of the Arab Local Authorities in Israel, the Democratic Constitution by Adala, and the Haifa Declaration by Mada Ar-Kalmel, which is an Arab Center for Applied Social Research. All these three documents reject the Jewish and democratic formula of Israel and argue for its replacement with a democratic system of government that provides both individual liberal rights and community group rights. These documents can, in my view, be seen as a testimony to the NGOization of Palestinian society in Israel parallel to that in the occupied Palestinian territory. This process began developing during the 1990s in the wake of the Oslo Accords. 
Today, there are numerous NGOs that represent and advocate for different aspects of the predicament of Palestinian citizens. They publish reports and educate about their situation and bring cases for Palestinian citizens to the Israeli courts. Now, to go back to the missing spring, uh, to the missing spring, Arab Spring in Israel, which sounds a bit like an oxymoron. As a minority, Palestinian citizens cannot possibly gain the support of the majority if they were to take to the street to demand regime change. So the question then is, in what way can they best address their predicament? And for the Palestinians in Israel, the question is whether to act from the inside of the Israeli state and society institutions or from the outside of these institutions. And this dilemma will be exemplified drawing on my research on the two branches of the Islamic movement in Israel that split in 1996 due to disagreement over whether or not to participate in national elections. But first, we need to define who we're talking about and look briefly at the history and current predicament of the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, <clears throat> and Let's first deal with terminology. Terminology uh, in this uh, part of the world is contentious. Palestinian citizens are by official Israeli institutions and in most Hebrew press called Arab Israeli. However, as Nadim Rohana argues, this terminology neglects the historical and national identity of this minority group. To emphasize the territorial belonging of Palestinian citizens, Adala describes these citizens as Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel, a national non-immigrant minority living in its historical homeland. So let's turn to this uh, historical background. During the war in 1947-1948, uh, what the Jewish Israelis call the War of Independence and Palestinians call the Nakba, the catastrophe, about 700,000 or more Palestinian Arabs were expelled or fled. Approximately 150,000 Palestinians remained in what became the State of Israel. Today, they number almost 1.2 million people of Israel's total population of approximately 7.7 million, or in other words, Palestinian citizens comprise 20% of the population. This is excluding Palestinians in the occupied East Jerusalem, as well as Syrian Jews in the occupied Golan Heights. Of the original 150,000, approximately 25% were displaced from their homes and villages and became internally displaced persons. After the, the establishment of the State of Israel, the indigenous Arab population lived under military governance until 1966. This system resulted in systematic marginalization of the Palestinian minority, both economically and politically and it caused added suffering to this already distressed indigenous population by means such as confiscating more than half of the land belonging to the Palestinian remaining in Israel in addition to that of those who were in exile, by restricting their freedom of movement uh, and the aim of this rule was to destroy any organized attempt at collective and political association and activities among Palestinians in Israel. The military governance was abolished in 1966 because it was no longer considered an efficient way to control this population. The abolition finally gave Palestinian Arabs in Israel the opportunity to travel freely within the country, organize themselves politically, be tried in the same legal system as Jewish citizens, and to participate in the country's economic and social life. 
So when we're talking about citizenship, it is important to note that only 60,000 of the 150,000 Palestinians who remained uh, after the war in 1948 were granted citizenship in 1948. And the rest had to wait to meet certain requirements, and some did not receive citizenship until 1980 when these criteria were changed. Yet, and significantly, as, Palestinians, as citizens, Palestinians and Israel do formally enjoy civil and political rights as individuals, including rights to health care, education, um, the right to vote, and to be elected at all levels. But, as non-Jewish citizens, they're excluded from equal membership in the political community. So, as explained by Gershon Shafir and Palestinian citizens are, and I quote, more or less secure in the exercise of their individual rights as long as these rights do not conflict with the national goals of the Jewish majority, unquote. Dan Rabinovich describes Palestinian citizens as a trapped minority. And similarly, Maj al-Hajj describes the predicament of Palestinian citizens as a double periphery. What they're both getting at is that Palestinian citizens are marginalized in the Israeli state and society as non-Jews and as indigenous Arabs, and they're also marginal within their own Palestinian nation where they have no influence. So, whereas for the majority of Jewish Israelis, the Palestinian citizens are perceived to be what Yusuf Jabarin describes as a potential fifth column and enemies of the state, on the other hand, to Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territory and elsewhere, Palestinian citizens of Israel have been viewed with a, degree, uh, with a degree of suspicion and considered to have been Israelified. So overall, the predicament of Palestinian citizens is being caught between their Palestinian identity and their Israeli reality. And this is illustrated by the fact that they were ignored in the Oslo process. Palestinian citizens cannot be considered to be represented by the PLO, although the PLO purports to represent Palestinians everywhere. The concerns of the Palestinian citizens of Israel were not addressed in the Oslo Accords and were not on the agenda during the talks. And the attitude of the PLO towards Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, is well illustrated in an exchange between Badr Rock, a former advisor to the PLO, and the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, that was revealed as part of the Palestine Papers. Rock asked the president, and I quote, I'm a Palestinian from Nasrit, and I have Israeli citizenship. Will I be granted Palestinian citizenship in the future state? Abbas replied, I understand why you ask this. I am a refugee from Safad. The answer, strategically, is no. You should stay where you are, protect your rights, and preserve your community. You don't need a passport to prove that you are a Palestinian. Raise two banners, equality and an independent state for your brothers in the occupied territory. End quote. So if the Palestinian citizens of Israel are not represented by the PLO, but on the other hand, Palestinian citizens cannot be considered to be represented by the Israeli government, they are outside insiders in the two states for two people formula. And this in-between position became very clear in the events in and following autumn 2000. That autumn, at least 12 Palestinian citizens of Israel were shot dead by Israeli police during demonstrations in support of the Palestinians in the occupied territory after the onset of the Intifada al-Aqsa. This was the bloodiest event for Palestinian citizens since the Kufr Qasem massacre in 1956, when 49 villagers were killed by Israeli police for breaking the curfew they were not informed about. 
So with these tragic events, the connection between the internal issues of Israeli state and society and the external conflict became clearer than ever to Palestinian citizens of Israel. And again, it showed that the reality on the ground does not fit the two states for two people formula. So being in this complex and at times paradoxical position, Palestinian citizens face the dilemma of how to fight for their rights from the inside or the outside of the system. And this, of course, can, can be described as a universal dilemma for minorities. And as I said, I'm going to use the Islamic movement in Israel to exemplify it. The Islamic movement uh, of Israel has two branches, the so-called northern branch and the so-called southern branch. And it split in 1996 over whether or not to participate in national Knesset elections. The movement was established in the 1980s and early 1980s, some would say late 1970s, up to discussion, by individuals who, after the occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in 1967, went to study at religious institutions in cities such as Hebron and Nablus. From its grassroots beginnings, the Islamic movement in Israel gradually increased its institutionalization and has participated in local elections in Palestinian-dominated areas from the mid-1980s. Today, the movement as a whole runs several municipalities where it exerts direct control over financial and other resources. And in addition, it has elected representatives in several local councils. And since 1996, since the split, the southern branch has had representatives in the Knesset on the joint list with other parties. And in the 2009 elections, this list secured five members of Knesset, which makes it the largest Palestinian list in the Knesset at present. However, because the movement is split, the number of members of Knesset does not reflect the actual size of the movement. And because the movement does not operate with any registered membership, it's difficult to determine exactly the number of supporters as well as the number balance between the two branches of the movement. Nor are there any statistics available that indicate how many people utilize the organizations and institutions of the movement. Therefore, in addition to local and national election results, we can use the numbers of supporters who participate at the demonstrations and events arranged by the movement to indicate its size. So, for example, as reported in the Israeli newspaper, in recent years, tens of thousands of supporters have participated at the annual festival called Al-Aqsa is in Danger, which is held to highlight what the movement considers to be Israel, Israeli threats to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So let's look more closely at the split in 1996. From the point of view of the northern branch and its leader, Sheikh Raid Salah, who were against participation in national elections, the main argument has to do with the non-Muslim character of the Israeli state. And this has two implications. From a religious point of view, they argue that the movement should not participate in a political system that is not based on the Sharia, the Islamic religious law. And from a political point of view, they argue that participation in these elections and with resulting representation in the Knesset would force them to accept the Zionist character of the state. Furthermore, they argue that having representatives in the Knesset would make the movement dependent on government resources and thus provide the state with control over its activities. So all in all, to Salah and the Northern Movement, participation in national elections would weaken the movement's unique contact with the people by making it just another Arab party that is involved in what he has described as the dirty business of politics. Conversely, 
The southern branch, currently led by Shah Hamid Abu Dabas, da uh, sorry, and those in favour of participation in national elections, argued that there is room for politi political compromise to be made with non-Islamic actors if this constitute the local context in which politics is conducted. According to the founder of the movement, Shah Abdallah Nimir Darwish, the Islamic movement in Israel should, according to the Sharia, be able to engage in national politics if this is the best way to promote and protect the interests of the Palestinian citizens. <coughs> so mixing religious and political argument in a document produced by the Southern Branch from 2007, they draw comparison between the Muslim brothers in Egypt and the Islamic groups in Pakistan, Malaysia, and Turkey, and, and argue that it's, more, it's, it's, it's the right thing to do to be represented in the Israeli Knesset. However, despite having had representatives in the Knesset since 1996, in interviews I conducted with present and former members of Knesset for the Islamic movement, the representatives themselves admit that it has had little, if any, positive consequences for the situation of Palestinians in Israel. Yet, they consider it important to keep their parliamentary position and continue to voice their opinions and protests. And in our conversations, um, current member of Knesset, Shah Ibrahim Sarsoud, explained that their aim is to relay a message to the Jewish Israelis, that is, and I quote, we were here, we are here, and we're not going anywhere, unquote. Today, there are talks about reunification of the Islamic movement. However, this has not been confirmed, and the process is uh, not complete, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Uh, but despite the differences, this political split, the two branches have continued to exist side by side since 1996. They use the same approach towards the Palestinian citizens, advocating and working towards a self-reliant community. And they have similar institutions and organizations that promote three main objectives. It's Islamization, Arabization, and the re-Palestinization of Palestinian citizens of Israel. So I'm going to go to describe the three of them uh, a bit more in detail. With regards to Islamization, the aim is to introduce and encourage a religious lifestyle among Muslim Palestinian citizens. And for this purpose, the movement has built mosques around the country, it educates its constituency about Islam, and it provides trips to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Al-Quds, Jerusalem, and to other religious sites around the country. Arabization is encouraged with studies of Arabic to combat the increasing Hebrewization of Palestinian citizens that has the added effect of rendering Arabic to a non-academic domestic language. This concern is related to the issue of Islamization as a decreasing level of standard Arabic among Palestinian citizens also decreases their ability to read and appreciate the texts of Islam. Re-Palestinization is emphasized in order to fight the process of Israelization. It is encouraged by teaching the Palestinian narrative and local history that is neglected in Israeli textbooks and in the Hebrew media and public. So through me measures such as trips to destroyed villages from 1948 and to the unrecognized villages in the Nakab Negev, the movement aims to increase awareness of the past and current predicament of the Palestinians around the country. The growth of the Islamic movement has caused internal tensions among, Palestinian, among, the, among the Palestinian community in Israel, 
And in interviews with Palestinian politicians that I conducted in 2010, they described being in agreement with the, with the Islamic movement on what they call external or political issues with regards to Palestinian citizens, such as working to improve the general rights of Palestinian citizens, which uh, and this cooperation is evident in the participation of the Islamic movement and secular party in the High Follow-up Committee, which is the extra parliamentary umbrella organization that represents Palestinian citizens at the national level. Whereas there are tensions, and the tensions that they described, these secular politicians, were the major one being um, around the, sorry, <laughs> caused by the conflicting views of the issue of the separation of religion and politics. So all the Palestinian politicians that I interviewed express the desire for a separation of religion and politics, which clearly goes against part of raison d'etre of the Islamic movement uh, itself. And this then represents a fundamental ideological difference between the Islamic movement and other Palestinian parties inside Israel. The other major issue that causes tension between the secular Palestinian citizens and the Islamic movement are gender issues, mainly women's rights and also gay lesbian rights. Especially NGO activists and secular politicians express deep concern for the constrictions enforced on women within the increasing conservative religious community of the Muslim Palestinians, where the Islamic movement is presumed to be a push factor for this development. A third issue causing tension is the different approach vis-a-vis -vis the state in the struggle for just distribution of governmental fund and equal rights. As I mentioned, the Islamic movement in Israel uses the approach of a, towards a self-reliant society. So for this purpose, the Islamic movement has developed an impressive system of local grassroots institutions and organizations that cater for the constituency from cradle to grave. In addition to religious education, the movement administers kindergartens, after-school activities, youth clubs, extracurricular classes for pupils and students, uh, preparation courses for university, uh, and cultural uh, facilities such as local radio stations. And most of its activities are funded by collections from its constituency, also uh, by foreign donations. However, the movement does receive state funding for some of its institutions, such as kindergarten and other municipal-related services. Now, in comparison, from the secular NGO point of view, the main concern caused by the self-reliance approach of the Islamic movement is that it undermines their struggle to force the state to deliver equal material support and equal rights to its non-Jewish citizens. So to illustrate this tension, uh, I'm going to sort of go through what happened after the riots in Akka, uh, Akra, or uh, Akko, in 2008. I'll, I'll use the uh, French-English term, Akra, I think. Akra. Akra, yeah, just try and stay out of, <laughs> out of the, the naming of the politics and naming. This northern city uh, of Israel has a mixed population of Jews and Arabs, about 27% of the population, which is a total of 52,000, are Palestinian citizens. And according to Musawa, which is the Advocacy Center for Arab Citizens in Israel that published a, a, a booklet called Akka, City on the Front. The riots in 2008 were started by religious Jews who were reacting to what they considered a violation of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. So on this day, the entire country comes to a standstill when secular 
as well as religious Jews, refrained from leaving their house, more or less, except to go to the synagogue. When a, pal a Palestinian man on this day drove through a Jewish neighborhood in Acre in order to pick up his daughter, he was attacked by religious Jews for violating the holy day. Palestinians' inhabitants uh, heard about this, and then they took to the streets, and there was a lot of turbulence and violence, and at the end of the day, or days rather, a hundred shops and properties, both Jewish and Palestinian, were damaged. In total, 30 Palestinian homes were attacked, three of them burned to the ground, and both Jewish and Palestinian rioters were arrested. And the point of this story in this connection, in this context, is that in the aftermath of this, both Musawa and the Islamic movement came to assist the Palestinian families involved. And whereas Musawa offered to help them demand compensation from the state for the damages and the failure of the police to protect them, in contrast, the northern branch of the Islamic movement came with cash and construction vehicles to rebuild their houses. So in this way, the, this, the northern branch of the Islamic movements, consciously or not, ended up undermining the NGO's attempt to make the state take responsibility for the damages by taking it in their own hands to rebuild the houses that were damaged. Now, to conclude, to talk, when we're talking about the position of Palestinian citizens uh, in Israel society as inside-outsiders, uh, I think this situation is defined by their predicament as a national indigenous minority separated from the rest of its nation and by the discrimination against them as non-Jewish citizens, which is currently increasing due to the extra pressure from the right-wing government coalition, its recent legal restrictions on Palestinian citizens and the current threats of population transfer. Today, Palestinian citizens are represented by articulate, well-educated groups and individuals who reject the Israeli Jewish democracy and work to change their state into a state for all its citizens. And the diversity among these representatives and groups testify to the fact that Palestinian citizens of Israel constitute a population with diverse vo voices representing plurality of political and religious groups within its community. With the then inherent and natural tension this produces in the framing of the situation as well as different strategies towards its solution, such as opting for segregating or integrating approaches vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli state and society. In this context, the Islamic movement of Israel represents a trend that increases the internal Jewish-Palestinian divide as both branches of the movement support the approach of a self-sustained society. And this simultaneously decreases the distance between Palestinians in Israel and Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territory. The consequences of this has yet to be seen, but it seems fair to assume that the process of Islamization, in addition to those of Arabization and re-Palestinization, of politics among Palestinian citizens will add a complicating element to the future hopeful or potential peace negotiations between two states in two people. Two peoples in two states, sorry. Thank you. Thank you very much. I suspect that this presentation will raise some questions <laughs> among the audience because it's, I think it's, it's, it's a great reflection of what happens in, in, in Israel and almost the, the divided communities. And I think a lot of what you say now probably 90-something percent of Israelis, Israel, Jews Israelis, are not aware of. Mm. 
and probably we should have this kind of talk also in Israel to, to inform, but I'll, I'll, I'll open the, uh, the floor to question, and if you can please uh, state your name and affiliation when you ask, and keep it to questions and not comments, please. This is affiliation too. I'd like to make more of a, a comment later on, if I may, but I think now is the time for specific questions. Please. Um, and, and my question is, uh, where do, please, can you put in the in the context of uh, Palestinian uh, Arabs in Israel uh, voting behaviour? Because you've chosen to look at uh, one particular uh, affiliation. Mm. Um, and I can understand from your final conclusion why you might have done that. It's an interesting conclusion, which we can comment on. Um, but just could you give us some uh, facts in terms of who, who in the uh, most recent elections, what is the breakdown, both in terms of voting uh, for the, um, shall we say, uh, uh, more uh, Zionist uh, organisations, Zionist political parties, uh, and for uh, secular movements within, within Palestinian Arab society, of which there are a number of political movements, not just the Islamic movement. Mm. Could you provide some detail about this so we can get the context? Mm. To do one one or? Yeah. Yes, this one. Yeah. At least to start with. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, obviously, I can't cover everything, so appreciate uh, the question. Um, as you might be aware of, until the 1970s, most Palestinians, uh, and we're not, again, talking about Palestinians in Israel, so I'm not going to, Palestinian citizens would vote for Zionist parties, and then uh, we had the, nation, the secular national parties among Palestinians emerging since the 1970s. Uh, and interestingly, they have, in the last elections, you had less Palestinians voting for Zionist parties than ever before in any, in any election before. And part of the reason for that uh, in the analysis, that it's not my own, other people's analysis, is that they felt threatened and they felt marginalized and, and probably then maybe more than before, or were more aware of it. The other element of this, which is related to the focus on the Islamic movement, is that the Islamic movement, as well as Ibn al-Balad, another party that only, rep uh, only stands for election at local uh, level, are not in favor, in general, of participation in national elections. They have not gone as far as, the Islamic movement has not gone as far and we're now talking about the northern branch that doesn't stand for election at national level. They have never gone as far as to say we uh, to encourage its followers directly not to participate in uh, or to vote in national elections. But there is an atmosphere of boycotting national elections, and there was a fear around the last elections in 2009 that so few Palestinians would vote that they might lose a lot of their representatives in the Knesset. In fact, they, they won more uh, or got more vote, more seats uh, than in the previous elections. So that was quite surprising. You don't have any facts on the statistical breakdown? 
I don't have that in the, at the moment right here. No, but sorry. Sorry, uh, as you rightly said. Well, I've got, no, I do have. The majority used to vote for the Israeli Communist yes. Party. Yes. And this has changed. It's pretty interesting to have. The well, the, at the moment, in the Knesset, the list that represents the Islamic movement is, has four members, which is the majority, which includes three members that represent the Islamic movement, and one that is uh, Ahmed Tibi, who represents himself. And his, and his own party. As always. Yes, as always. <laughs> then there is the, uh, the uh, well, it's not the Communist Party as such, but the uh, Democratic Front for uh, Peace and Equality that has four members, uh, but also one of them is a Jewish representative. So they have three Palestinian members. And uh, let's see. And then uh, the National Democratic Alliance, or Tajamu, uh, has three members of Knesset, and one of them is the first female member of Knesset, female Palestinian member of Knesset to be voted to a Palestinian party, um, which is significant. If you look in terms of numbers and figures, probably Palestinians are half a foot potentially they can have. If they were on 12 mm, members, 12. and there are 120 members of Knesset, and the 20% of the population potentially can have that by the split. I think it's an, an anecdote. You see that some of the Palestinians, Israeli Palestinians, are voting for a party like Shas. Mm. Not anymore, though, do you think? There's still a little bit, but there was, it was quite, quite fashionable in the mm. 1990s. Mm. This is an ultra-Orthodox, and it was kind of a unification of the discriminated, or those mm. who feel discriminate, discriminated. So you find Palestinians voting for an ultra-Orthodox Faradi party. Please. Um, my name is Arnold Whitman. I, my only affiliation, I suppose, is uh, that I'm Jewish. I still have an interest in Israel and uh, Middle Eastern politics. I suppose I start with struggling with just the concept of calling them Palestinians, mm -hmm. in the sense that they've been citizens of Israel, them and their parents, since since the declaration of the state. Mm -hmm. So I would have, I would have called them Arab Israelis, so you have Arab Israelis and you have Jewish Israelis. Mm -hmm. Now, the Palestinians then, I would have think of as those people who live in the West Bank, mm -hmm. who are, in my opinion, a separate group, mm -hmm. which I guess leads to the question of the extent to which what you're calling Palestinians, what I'm calling Arab Israelis, see that they have a great deal, whether or, I'm asking whether mm. or not you think that this group of people who live mm. within Israel mm. think of themselves as the same group as the Palestinians who perhaps live in the West Bank or mm -hmm. live in Lebanon, or whether they think of themselves as being rather different from that because their whole history has been different. They've lived in Israeli society, mm. they've been discriminated against, but they've lived in a different political regime. Mm completely different way of life, I would suggest to you, mm. from those who've lived in refugee camps, say, in, um, in, in Lebanon or in Jordan or in the West Bank, or even those who perhaps Palestinians who've moved to Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or whoever. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I, I, I tried to address it quite briefly uh, in my introduction, and I uh, think... No, I'm, I'm quite sh certain. In fact, if you go to these documents, that are uh, readily available if you, if you Google them online, the three declarations, the future vision documents, they all three uh, specifically state that they consider themselves as a group, uh, can, 
part of the Palestinian nation and people, which includes Palestinians in the occupied uh, territories as well as elsewhere in refugee camps in Lebanon or, or in Saudi Arabia or you know, anywhere uh, in exile. And that, and I think if you think of, you know, obviously they've had a different political and social experience since 1948, but uh, and physically separate, I guess. Yes, certainly, and, to, and certainly until 1966, yeah. where the Palestinians in Israel are, are under military governance. But of course, every every Palestinian family, uh, small or large, who are at present in Israel would have relatives somewhere around, either in the occupied territories or in a refugee camp uh, in the neighboring countries or around the world. So they would all have distant or, or, or close relatives. They would all have families from, from you know, neighbors or families from their local communities. So it's not as if the group of Palestinians that remained was one integrative special group. In fact, it was very random and very uh, sort of haphazard and very, wasn't a planned, uh, you know, needed to leave or not to leave. Uh, and as I also mentioned, 25% or so of the Palestinians who did remain became internally displaced people. So they are people who are refugees within the state of Israel, even though they never lived in, in refugee camps as such. Uh, but yes, they are assertive about their Palestinian identity. Um, and that's also why one of the points that I mentioned about the Islamic movement is this sort of re-Palestinization, which is not unique to the Islamic movement. It's going on among all groups, political and cultural, socially aware groups, among, in, among the Palestinian citizens of Israel to uh, address the, the sort of this element of their identity, which is so important, but that they're not taught in school. Israeli textbooks, also the ones in Arabic for the Palestinian students or Arab students, would not talk about the Nakba, will not talk about uh, the exile of, or uh, you know, the, what happened in 1948 from a Palestinian point of view. You would not tell them about what Palestinian in Palestine was before 1948. So they need to be re-educated uh, and that part of that, for example, when that is distributing maps, what did it look like, or going to villages and rediscovering their own very local history. Um, and a different, and also a connection to this, is a part of this, this policy uh, of the military governance was to sort of split and rule the Palestinian population. So they would split administratively, split uh, them according to religious Affiliation, so between Muslim, Christians, and Druze, and also the Bedouins were considered a sort of segregated or different group. This was an enforced split and not necessarily a, a, something that reflected the way that people had interacted before the, uh, the war and the establishment of the State of Israel, but because of the way that the military governance was enforced, then obviously think, you know, this, it becomes partially a reality. So today, when I said that they also arranged trips to go to the south, to the Negev or the Nakab, to see the unrecognized villages and the, the situation of the Bedouins, is to educate people, Palestinians from other areas about them, about their co-inhabitants, so to speak. Please. Um, Ellen Darangol, former chair of the New Israel Fund in London. You know, you're talking about insider outsiders, and I know you can't talk about everything, but I think what you've left out mm. is the insider part. But I'm, 
it, it will come to a question, mm. but by stressing um, the Islamists, have you done any work about the links between secular uh, um, Israeli Palestinians and secular Israeli Jews who are fighting mm. yeah. both about church and state? Mm. Um, certainly in my experience, there are enormous links. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with anything you said, but I am disagreeing. The picture is very mm. um, uh, uh, biased in mm. a way because of all the things that you left out. Yes, discrimination. Yes, humiliation, perhaps every day. But there are so many Palestinians in higher education, mm. involved in NGOs. Um, who would not want to be citizens of the Palestinian state. Um, I don't know, have you done any, has there been a, a, a specific survey? Do you have data on that? Sorry, uh, or about? Has there been, has there been a, a, a survey of the uh, Palestinian population of Israel, whether or not they would prefer to be citizens of another, of the, of the new Palestinian state? Certainly, my friends do mm. not want to. Mm. No, first of all, thank you for your for your comment. Uh, there, yes, no, I appreciate this is why it's good that we have a whole hour for, for questions and answers because, of course, in half an hour you can't cover everything. Uh, and my own recent research, as I said, was on the Islamic movement. But, uh, yes, you're right. There is a lot of uh, NGOs, like I mentioned, and I didn't go into details. You have NGOs such as Tayush, which is an uh, organization where you have both Jewish and Palestinian citizens who work together from inside Israel against the occupation in the occupied territories and so on. So there's a lot and lot of uh, activism going on across lines, and uh, uh, that's important and, it, uh, and should be mentioned. And uh, there have been several different surveys at different times whether or not Palestinian citizens would like to move or become citizens uh, of a uh, Palestinian state according to the two-state solution uh, formula. And most of them would not want that. Most of them would want to stay where they are, which I think is part of uh, what is articulated precisely in these three documents is that they want to be where they are, they don't even mind, well, they say they don't mind it being called Israel, they don't mind it being, you know, they want it to be within the 1967 borders, but they don't want it to be a Jewish state. Because that's, so that's their, that's the crux of their, for their issue, is they want it to be one state for all their, for all its citizens, but they do not want to move, necessarily. Uh, almost at all. In fact, uh, only today there was an interview with a, a mayor, a Palestinian mayor of a town inside Israel in Haaretz, and he also, you know, reiterated. He says, I mean, he said basically, I know I, I'm not going to move. I, this is my home. I'm not going to leave it. Uh, but I want to be treated as an equal citizen in this place, uh, and I'm pos very positive to a two-state solution. Did that answer your? Partly, yeah. if, if I may follow up, don't you feel sometimes, as usually diasporas tend to be confused, and you'll forgive me for saying this, that there is always a sort of confusion of ambivalency because you're part here, you're part there. Mm -hmm. Yes, the, there are surveys that say that vast majority doesn't want to move naturally and doesn't want to become Palestinian, but they want some affiliation with a, for, a, a newly formed Palestinian state. So 
you are basically living two worlds and your loyalty is, is split and as long as the occupation continues mm -hmm. and suppression of your brother, you have a split, split loyalty and you find yourself in a very difficult situation. I Would think, you? Yeah. yeah. No, and I think the question that was uh, leaked through these Palestine papers that was addressed to Abbas sort of exemplifies this, this Palestinian, very highly educated Palestinian from inside Israel, who came to work as a as a uh, advisor to Abbas, said, "You know, what about me? What's going to happen to me? Mm. Well, how do you view it from that from that point of view?" And Abbas clearly said, "I want you to stay there, and 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 make sure you have equal rights in that setting, uh, and then but support our struggle uh, for our our equal rights and freedom here." Um, but it's not about physically moving, because even in places, there are places where you could redraw the border. Baka al-Gabir, for example, the Green Line goes right through. Mm -hmm. And until the Intifada, there was constant toing and froing. Um, but it's partly the protection of certain Israeli institutions, like the Supreme Court. Like, mm. I'm not saying that they work for Palestinian citizens of Israel as well as they work for Jewish citizens, mm. but they still... Oh yeah, and yeah, like, I mean, it's, you, as I very briefly uh, mentioned, and that, you know, uh, can be very, very more, much more extensively um, Described is these rights. I mean, you know, the Palestinian citizens are citizens, and and they do have individual rights, and they have right to health care, to education, to be elected at every level. I mean, this is, you know, these are, these are important and substantial rights, uh, and uh, as well as, as as an economic, you know, their position economically compared to the occupied territories is, isn't isn't really worth comparing. So for all, I mean, it's, I don't think Palestinian citizens are naive. I don't think, you know, I think they would also have uh, very concrete uh, reasons for not wanting to move in addition to their belonging to their own place. Yeah, certainly. Please, the gentleman. Can you just please introduce yourself? Sorry, my name is Ted from the last question seems to be that yes, yeah, Palestinians do suffer discrimination. Um, people will live with that and, and will accept that. And I think that is presumably what you're challenging from the beginning. But in fact, as, as the mayor you quoted said, <coughs> he would wish that Palestinians within Israel are treated as equal citizens. Mm. But from your description and other facts, they're clearly not. Mm. And, uh, Concerns me. The last question seems to imply that that was acceptable. Well, let's 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 Sorry. let's still answer this question. Instead of no, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I can only speak for myself, but and uh, in, in this presentation, I you know, I think the point for Palestinian citizens is, and as you'll see as well, it's. It's, you know, they want equal rights and, and they want to be equal citizens. And they know that they have, you know, certain, certain rights and certain, but that's not enough. They want it to be completely equal. And, and, and that's, you know, that's the bottom line. Um, and um, I think they're very good at articulating that. 
Probably to add to this confusion, I think the Israelis are also confused in this sense, in, in, in many ways, because they say, oh, do we want to learn, but we don't want to do the same thing in the army, and then we don't have to give them the same item. It's almost multiple confusion, but the lady. I'm Rebecca Steinfeld. I'm doing a PhD at the University of Oxford. Um, my question might be a bit irritating, because I'm asking you to speculate on sort of future prospects for okay. Palestinian citizens of Israel, um, particularly in light of... Um, well, I guess a few things. Like, firstly, you were highlighting the fact that the government of Israel is a pretty far-right coalition, um, which seems to be quite acceptable now to be talking very openly, quite recently, and indeed passing legislation like the Nakba law and the community bill and these kinds of things. So I'm sort of wondering what effect you think those would have on Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, also, the sort of upcoming vote at the UN on the establishment of so to simplify things, we have the Nakba law, the loyalty law, and declaration of Palestinian state. So <laughs> over to and, you. And, and Jerusalem. And Jerusalem. Um, I think there is a lot of exciting, you know, exciting, not necessarily in, in positive or, or negative terms, uh, exciting developments at the moment. Um, and what seems to be happening to address both the, the issue of the right-wing coalition at the moment and all these new laws uh, and, um, uh, that they're try they have and that they're also in the process of, of, of uh, uh, pushing through, uh, as well as this grassroots movement. So we sort of have these two things happening in a, in a sort of parallel. So you have a, a right-wing polit political sort of atmosphere at the higher level, whereas on the grassroots level you have very much uh, activities such as in, in the Negev Nakab, as in uh, Jerusalem, East Jerusalem in particular, uh, but also inside Israel uh, among both Palestinian and Jewish uh, activists who together would uh, are against you know, both these politi new policies but against also what's happening on the ground. And I think maybe what you're seeing is that they're connected, so that what you're seeing on the ground is a reflection not just as a protest to what locally is happening in Jerusalem, but also what is happening and where can we go and demonstrate against that. Uh, how do we show, show our sort of a resistance? And I think that's why it is quite, it's very pluralistic, the, the Jerusalem grassroots movement. The Islamic movement is very present, so is uh, the anarchists, I mean, you know, they're mostly Jewish and, and Israeli. So you have this is very, it's very, very pluralistic. Um, I don't know exactly what, I mean, I haven't seen any specific uh, utterances from Palestinian uh, leaders inside Israel on the UN vote. I know that if you take the example of what happened in 2000 and throughout the Second Intifada, the Palestinians inside Israel has been very active in supporting the Palestinians in the occupied territories, uh, both, both by going out and demonstrating, but also later supporting them uh, through political solidarity as well as material and, and financial uh, means. And so I think what we're seeing is a more, much, I mean, increasingly much more articulate 
a much more assertive Palestinian citizens in Israel who are not afraid uh, any longer, it seems, to be associated with Palestinian citizens, uh, sorry, with Palestinians in the occupied territories, such as they might have been uh, more previously. Um, I attended the, uh, the funeral for, for um, Yasser Arafat uh, in Ramallah, and it was busloads of Palestinians from inside Israel I went on one of these buses to sort of go there with them as part of my fieldwork, and it was exciting because it was busloads of Palestinians from inside, you know, going through these checkpoints and arguing with soldiers, and they were going to go, and you know, that's that I don't, wouldn't have happened uh, not that many years ago, I think. Uh, not, and I'm not going to talk about the meaning of Arafat, but the meaning of them going there uh, in in that way. Um, I also, I mean, if you also see the Palestinian citizens inside Israel on their reactions to the Arab Spring, they're very positive. And there was this immediate um, text message campaign sort of going around to celebrate the Arab Spring and particularly uh, Cairo and, and, and Egyptian Revolution. So there's certainly on the ball of, of things that happens, but you know, there's a degree to how much, there's a limit to how much they can be active participants. And this is clearly exemplified, I think, with the Sheikh Raid Salah, the leader of the Northern Movement, who has been in prison several times now uh, over accusation of support of Hamas, uh, which um, financial support to Hamas that Israeli, uh, according to Israeli law, is illegal. Any more questions? Go. Robert Lowe from the Centre LSC. Um, I was interested to hear you touch upon Hamas. Um, I was also interested you mentioned the relationship with the PLO earlier, and I wonder if you could elaborate even further on relationships or views from the Palestinian citizens of organisations or indeed states outside um, the country in which they live who claim to represent Palestinians or have interests in the issue more broadly. So, in addition to Hamas, what they think of Hezbollah um, mm. and indeed the Syrian and Iranian states mm. um, and their efforts fight for the Palestine-Palestinians, mm. and it may be too speculative, but what are, the, what are their views um, of these parties, um, if, if indeed they're actual relations with them? I think, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think when the example of the PLO, as well as of other um, Arab and, and Muslim countries, when it comes to the Palestinian citizens of Israel, they're the ones, it's a sort of, it shows how much they've been forgotten, I think, and, and to a large degree ignored. Uh, and again, it also shows their complete sort of the paradoxical situation when you had uh, during uh, the last war in, in Lebanon in 2006, so you had uh, Hezbollah rockets uh, that were, uh, if not targeting, certainly uh, ending up in, in Palestinian communities inside Israel. And quite, you know, quite a few of the people who died were Palestinian citizens. Yet, on the other hand, they were not supporting these, the Palestinian citizens were not supporting the Israeli invasion. So it's this sort of very, you know, that they're caught basically literally in the crossfire. Um, and, I mean, you mentioned PLO, Syria, Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas. So I think, uh, I, I mean, none of them uh, obviously can, can purport to represent Palestinians. 
uh, in Israel. Palestinians in Israel have clear have huge difficulties in meeting with any of these people, even if they want. I mean, if they wanted to, because they have Israeli citizenship, so they can't go uh, to most of the places where these people would be. Uh, I know that the Islamic movement uh, in Israel has meetings with other Islamic movements uh, regionally, and I presume that that includes Hamas in Turkey, for example, or in Europe. Uh, so there are connections, definitely, among the religious uh, groups. Um, but they have to be careful as well, so, because obviously there is a law in Israel that you're not allowed to go to, to enemy countries, and there's also, you know, this complications. Um, yeah, did that answer some of your questions? In the case of the Rausche, for instance, sorry. Yeah. Maybe it's too speculative, but personally, what, what do we feel about these countries and, and the way they operate and, and, and play? Do they find them troublesome a problem rather than contributing anything to their life? I don't know if you could lump them all together, though. You know, I think there, there are different countries and there are different relations and different uh, situations. And, well, when it comes to sort of Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, there are Palestinians in all of these countries, and there might be Palestinian relatives or at least, be, you know, connections in that sense. And obviously they would support the support of the Palestinian people and the Palestinian struggle, but as Palestinians in the occupied territories, equally they would also feel, you know, that it's a lot of words and not a lot of action. And thus far the action hasn't really been very um, conducive. So uh, I think it's complicated. On the other hand, I mean, I, I was not in, in Israel during the um, 2006 war in Lebanon. I was, I was in Ramallah. Uh, at that point, and there it was very popular, uh, but uh, I don't think it was equally popular uh, among Palestinians in Israel for the obvious reasons that it was complicated because it was dangerous. On the other hand, I know uh, from first-hand um, conversations that Palestinians on the border, in, on towns on the border to Lebanon, were strongly against the Israeli army coming in and using their villages as bases to target Lebanon for two reasons. One, because they didn't want the, the backfire, uh, but, and the other is they didn't want that association. They say, you, know, they say you can go and, and go somewhere else. Don't come to our location and, and shoot at your enemies. We're not their enemies. So it's a very complex predicament. Can you talk about the Christians? Well, yeah. hmm. That was my question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Jill Hamilton, you don't talk about the Christians at all, yet they're 10% of the Arabs, and you've got at least one female Arab MK. You've got Justice Dubran, who's in the Supreme Court, and they're certainly not going to any of the Islamic parties. No, no, definitely. Um, I find it look. very odd you didn't mention them at all. Yes, I'm sorry, my, my research is... It's like I said but about let's the Islamic give the opportunity movement. to deal with the Christians. But let's deal with the Christians, yes. Uh, you're right. The Christians would never vote, uh, or never, but as a, as a, as a, uh, a generalized uh, observation, Christians would not vote for the Islamic movement. And uh, also I know that a lot of secular Muslim as well as Christian, both female and, and 
and male politicians and others would be very concerned, particularly about what I mentioned about the gender issues when it comes to the increasing dominance of the Islamic movement and sort of religious, uh, more religious orientation among Muslims among the Palestinians of Israel. Um, but I mean, yeah, I was going to say, do you have any specific, or should I, I mean, talk about them in general, or? I just find it very difficult, because I go to Israel and Jerusalem quite a lot, mm -hmm. and I'm not as aware as you're making out mm -hmm. about the um, increase of this Islamic movement amongst the, mm -hmm. amongst the Arabs. Mm -hmm. there. Um, how strong do you really, I don't think it's really going to take over in the middle. I, I, first of all, I don't know if it's going to take over either, but certainly not in Jerusalem. Uh, the Islamic movement, uh, and it's good that you pointed that out, it's important, we should have had a map maybe. The Islamic movement, yeah, the Islamic movement is strong, and we're talking about the Islamic movement inside Israel, so for the Palestinian, among the Palestinian citizens, is strong uh, in the sort of so-called triangle, so in the sort of center of Israel. No, I talked a lot about numbers and said how difficult it is precisely to give numbers because there aren't any statistics. However, uh, as I said, you know, they represent, they have three representatives in the Knesset. Uh, that is only half or one branch of the movement, which is an indication of, of, their, of its popularity. Uh, and they run at least five, if not more, municipalities in addition to have elected members on other local councils. But then again, that does not, I think, reflect the, I mean, it depends. It's like with any, it's like with Shas, it's like with Hamas, it's like with any political religious movement. It's very difficult to, to measure precisely, to touch the numbers, because some people would vote for them, some people would use their institutions, some people would support them financially, but they wouldn't all do everything necessarily. So it's very difficult to describe exactly the size of such a movement. Uh, and that's why I think we could look at uh, in addition to these events that they organize that has tens of thousands, and we could talk about 50, 60, 70,000 people who would attend events, um, but not necessarily vote for them if they could in an election. But other things that the Islamic movement does, which is related to Jerusalem, is that every week, in fact every day, there are buses from every Palestinian locality inside Israel to Jerusalem. And they're organized by the Islamic movement, both branches, and they're free. And what they do is they take Palestinians from these localities to Jerusalem so that they can go to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and pray. And the purpose of that is, first of all, the Islamic movement would like these people to be able to go to the Al-Aqsa and then facilitate that. But it's also because they think that the Al-Aqsa Mosque now, particularly with, uh, with the... Um, barrier and with the sort of increasing isolation of Jerusalem is not getting used enough so it's also sort of for the Al-Aqsa so to speak uh, and the second point for them is to support the Palestinians in East Jerusalem so that you have all these Palestinians coming from places in Israel and they are encouraged to spend money in Jerusalem in support of the Palestinians in Jerusalem um, and According to the Islamic movement, the northern branches numbers, they have 300 to 400,000 Palestinians each year that make this trip to Jerusalem, which is another indication of the popularity of, of their activities, if not an, an indication of, of you know, their voting power. Please. Um, 
Uh, Dr. John Lush from the London Consortium. Um, I have a question about your notion of NGOization. Mm -hmm. um, actually, two related questions. First, whether um, you have any indication of, of this process mirroring uh, a broader national process in Israel that sees sort of from, I, I presume, the, 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 the 80s or the 90s, a crawling mm -hmm. privatization of the civil society and the emergence of NGOs throughout Israel, both in the Jewish and the non-Jewish uh, uh, populations. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the second thing is, is whether the NGOization the, the is, is, is an indication of a disengagement from, from, from the civil society and mm -hmm. from, from Israeli discourse as a whole, mm -hmm. or whether it, these, these documents, for example, are, are, are a challenge to the to the to the Israeli center from the the peripheral position of the Arab society, whether it, it moves away from mm -hmm. or towards the the, the center mm -hmm. of Israeli society. I think I think you're right. As I as a I think I meant, you know, that this is a process from the sort of 1980s and certainly from the 1990s and the sort of Oslo years, so to speak, there was a lot of international uh, funders coming in and that uh, made it possible for Palestinians and Jewish Israelis as well as Palestinian in the occupied territories to establish NGOs. Uh, and there's quite a few interesting critical uh, analysis of both this process as well as its consequences. Uh, I think Interestingly enough, I think that this sort of NGOization has led to two things uh, with regards to the Palestinians in Israel. I think it both has made them more self-aware, more assertive, uh, more professional, and certainly more on the agenda. Uh, organizations such as Adala, Musawa, I mean, they're, you know, they're used in the media, they go to the High, the high Court of Justice, so they, they get things not just... Uh, done for themselves, but also puts themselves on the Israeli agenda, educates the general Israeli public and so on. On the other hand, of course, uh, in a way, part, some, so these, you know, depends on the, on the strategy, because some of these organizations, what they do is take care of the needs of Palestinians inside Israel, and of course, by doing that, you were in one way both isolating yourself but also taking over the responsibility of the state would be part of the criticism. Um, and a third criticism, which is also particularly uh, relevant for Palestinians in the occupied territories, is that you're sort of creating this internal elite where you have all this international funding coming and then creating an uh, elite among the Palestinians where, you, where who are... Uh, well, quite well paid, uh, can, uh, relatively speaking, and who have these positions, but they're not leading to any uh, political, maybe, participation as political parties. They're not connected necessarily to an ideology as such. And uh, they're sort of making a bubble inside the society that's a bit disconnected from reality of so-called normal people. Um, and now, this, uh, which, which the lady from, from the Newsreel Fund probably could have testified to, uh, who funds a lot of these organizations, uh, there is a new law, part of one of, one of these new laws that the current government uh, is uh, passing, is makes it very difficult for international funders to fund Palestinian NGOs inside Israel uh, as long as they don't fulfill certain criteria in terms of what they do or don't. Uh, and 
So a lot of them now will lose a lot of funding, uh, and then Palestinians' community would lose these voices and representation. Please. Um, my name is Barry Garfield, LSC alumni. I'm just interested in the subject. Um, to what extent do you think the Israeli system of proportional representation has fragmented uh, the Arab vote? And um, do you see any forces emerging that might consolidate it or change it in any significant way? Because mm. we know that it's not the Israeli carpets. <laughs> yeah. Um, trying to. I, I come, I'm Norwegian, um, so I'm quite familiar with this fragmentation of a lot of the small population, lots and lots of parties. Um, which, yeah, I see, you know, uh, and I think uh, that is one of the problems. I mean, that's one of the problems. Okay, so let's go. To, let's turn to my case. So the Islamic movement of, of Israel, when. Uh, the southern branch, Abdullah Namir Darwish, the Sheikh, suggested, he said, I will only go, into uh, only go into elections if we can have one party. We all come together, all the, you know, the secular, the communist, we all, we all come together, all the Palestinian representatives, we have one party. It would be much better for us. Then we could actually, you know, we can argue on our own and then we can come together and represent ourselves collectively uh, as regards the, the, the Jewish state and society. Uh, it didn't didn't happen, uh, and and I don't think it did happen. Will happen, but whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I think you know in a way it reflects reality and it, this diversity among this population. And I think it's probably problematic with regards, or it could maybe be more beneficial if they had less of a plurality of voices vis-à-vis -vis the majority. But I also think it speaks to the, to the fact of democracy when it comes to internal plurality and diversity. The question if a low threshold as you have in the Israeli Knesset or yeah. electoral system of 2% actually encourages fragmentation. You can also say it's a conspiracy to keep the country fragmented because if you increase it, it will encourage unity. So if you, if you really believe in this, it's designed, but I think it's by default and not uh, by design. That's a cynical point. Yeah, and I will never be cynical about anything in politics. <laughs> Perish the thought. Uh, any other question? Yes, last interview. <laughs> if it's a short comment, not a long no, comment. No, I won't ramble for too long. No, <laughs> just, uh, Sounds dangerous. My, my name is Richard Lee. Um, I, I just wanted to briefly comment on your closing thesis which, if I understood it correctly, was that the Islamic movement has increased the divide uh, between Jews and Palestinian Arabs living inside Israel. Um, and it's decreased the divide, or closer together, the Palestinian Arabs in Israel and those outside of Israel. Has the potential yes. to, yeah. yeah. So I understood that that was your thesis. And just by way of comment, um, whilst I agree that, uh, this is, that the Islamic movement, as you've described it, has been a factor increasing that tendency. Um, my own uh, knowledge of, of, of living in Palestine um, is that this has been a very long-term tendency, um, and that the tendency has been expressed um, throughout different organisations within the Palestinian society, and, and not only the Islamic mm -hmm. movement. I, I was working for a, a Palestinian organization in Yaffa, uh, south of Tel Aviv, um, Al-Rabitar by name, 
which had been uh, founded by uh, Christian Palestinians from a professional background, uh, which when I worked for them was a very mixed uh, Palestinian organization. Um, and one of the tasks that I did, and this was back in the 1980s, uh, was precisely to do some of the things you described, which was to arrange uh, coach trips to the West Bank, which was to uh, hold alternative education classes um, around Palestinian history, uh, because this wasn't available in, in both the state schools and the religious schools, actually. Um, and that was the 1980s. Um, and it was something that was um, clearly a, a great need within all parts, all components of the Palestinian community. It wasn't just coming from one sector of the community. Um, and I, whilst uh, when I was involved in the 1980s, the idea of going to the West Bank was uh, amazing for people and a bit scary um, because many of them, it was the first time they'd been there. So obviously this has moved on. Um, as you've described it around Arafat's funeral and so on. Clearly, there's, uh, this is much more of a normal uh, exchange. But I just, my comment is just that there's, there's been a long term tendency to, towards the Arabization, to the, towards an increasing sense of Palestinian identity over decades. And that this is, this is inevitably going to increase as a long term projection. And that, the, and that your thesis of the Islamic movement's role in this. Is, is really uh, one component um, that is leading to the push in this direction, but only one component. Oh. Yes, no, I, I totally agree. I think I, you know, I hope I said that as well as part, you know, that this is not, it's not only the Islamic movement, but the Islamic movement is the newest component, so to speak, uh, in this process, and particularly now because of its size uh, and because of its focus on religion. Uh, but no, I, I, I agree with you. Right. <laughs> the questions are coming. No, I question. Sorry, I just want to make a comment as a, an Arab, Palestinian, Israeli, whatever you want to call it. You gave your affiliation, but not your name, so. I'm going to give you my name. Um, Sorry? Do you want my name? Yes, please. As uh, Mr. Akka. <laughs> okay. um, I think what you said, a lot of um, just enforcing what you said in terms of um, the, the Islamic group growing. I uh, just think a lot of that it's happening because they've been very organized and showing very weird, a lot of will in terms of helping the people of Palestine, especially, as you said earlier, that they've been forgotten about for a long time. Um, what do you think, um, how, how, how do you think Israel is going to um, perceive that long term? Because I can see that the Islamic movement can only grow, mm. and I can see that on the street. Mm. Um, you know, I've been living here a long time ago, um, and every time I go back there, I can see more and more youngsters mm. um, being part of Islamic groups, mm. um, going to the Nagab, like you said, mm. doing volunteer work and stuff like that. Um, how do you think Israel is going to um, perceive this? I, I can imagine you know, they're not going to be too happy about it because mm. certainly they don't want extremism or mm. etc. whatever um, that might come out of it. Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I, think it's, I mean, you know, it's a bit ironic because in the beginning of the Islamic movement, when they went to these uh, 
in educational institutions in Hebron and Nablus, etc., they were actually actively supported by the Israeli government to the point that they were given study loans and so on to go there. And, you know, they were very much encouraged uh, because they thought this could be a, a sort of buffer against the secular nationalist, Arab nationalism that they were afraid of. And it didn't occur to them, I suppose, that they would might grow into the force it has today which is a combination of Arab nationalism with religious nationalism and religious. So, um, the, but yet, you know, as Palestinian citizens with, uh, with rights, they have the right and are given the right to, to stand for elections, uh, etc., and hold offices. Uh, and it seems to me that what the Israeli government uh, is doing is sort of very much observing, keeping a close eye on, uh, and any time, particularly with regards to the northern movement, it is trying. It seems also like it's it's that's the, you know the, they're for obvious reason favouring the southern movement, which is participating in, in national elections and is a lot less articulate. Even if I would say that they stand for the same values and the same stands towards the state and uh, and the occupation, they they have a different way of articulating it. But with regards to Sheikh Hayd Salah and his organisations, they have raided the offices several times. They confiscate their computers and uh, imprison him and, and several other um, high mem uh, sort of uh, members that are high up in the hierarchy uh, and. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the affiliation or support of Hamas, or that's at least the accusations. Now, so it seems to me that they're keeping an eye uh, on them, but at the same time, the Islamic movement is, is it's nonviolent, and they're to uh, to you know keeping within the framework of the legal the legal framework of the state, uh, and uh, I think. I mean, if we go back to what Netanyahu said in the Congress the other day, you know, it also it's, looks quite good for Israel to have an Islamic movement that's represented in the Knesset. I mean, it, you know, it says, uh, says something about democracy. Um, but what would happen if this movement, uh, for example, what if they unite? And if they actually then went to the Knesset, and what if they only, I mean, they estimate, and this is just internal estimations from the movement, that they alone would get between eight and nine members of the Knesset if they went. So that would, you know, almost, well, at least uh, add a, thir a third of, uh, of votes, or members of the Knesset to, to the Arab population. Would be interesting to see. Um, but then I think the general trend we're seeing at the moment with these new laws and everything is, you know, does restrict any, all Palestinian citizens, certainly including the Islamic movement. But I'm, I'm trying to look at what I can see from facts and not predict. Thank, you. thank you. All right, this was interesting. But before we thank uh, Dr. Rosman, let me just uh, inform you that there will be another lecture on the 7th of June with the fascinating title, Why Egypt and Tunisia and not Iran? Yet. So apparently there are two gentlemen that know the answer to that. <laughs> We'd love to hear that. The speakers will be Dr. Nadar Hashemi and from University of Denver, Danny Posser from uh, the Interface Worker Justice. So you can read more details about this meeting on the Middle East Center uh, website. And this gives me an opportunity. Thank you very much for really dealing with uh, such a sensitive issue and such thoughtfulness and, and, and depth. Thank you so much for this.